Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is May the 19th, 2020. This is episode 2663 of the Survival Podcast, Just Jack Show. Today we're going to talk about developing your own personal counter-economics game plan. Counter-economics is like this long, multi-syllabic, fancy-sounding thing, but... I think you'll find by the end of today that every single person in this country, uh, most people around the world, including the biggest status you can find, practices or has practiced and will practice again at some point in their life, counter-economics. Um, I'll save some thoughts on that for our quote of the day, which is by Samuel Konkin. Um, but if you just think about it, have you ever bought anything from someone that technically wasn't supposed to sell it to you? Ever. Like, I don't know, you're, when you were a kid, your buddy scored some fireworks and you bought some fireworks from your buddy. Like that. You ever went to, uh, when you were a kid, you went to a party, you know, the Red Solo Cup party, you paid two bucks a head to get in. You ever do that? You ever play poker for money outside of Las Vegas or Atlantic City, basically, or an Indian casino? Right, that's all counter-economics. It, it sounds complicated, but it's not. What, what actually made me come up with today's subject, and you know, I mean, today's episode is what, 2663? You know, after 2600 episodes, sometimes you're like, I already did that, but then you're thinking, I did that like eight years ago, so it probably wouldn't hurt to do it again. But sometimes it's hard to come up with something, and I, I tend to look around at what's being discussed around me by people I know and respect. And two people I really like are Vin Armani and Peter Quinones. Um, Peter, of course, is the guy behind Free Man Behind the Wall, and Vin Armani is Vin Armani. pretty much doesn't need an introduction. Um, these guys are both in my space as far as the agorist, uh, uh, anarchist space, uh, voluntarist space, and I, I really respect both of them. So there's going to be a part today where I kind of talk about the evolution of an anarchist slash libertarian, and it might sound like one of them more typifies it than the other, and one's more this place and one's more that place. This is not a comparison of my friends. I don't want anybody to think like I'm saying one's better than the other or anything like that. These guys are both my friends. And what spawned today's topic is a single thought from each of them. So you don't ever put anybody in a box based on a single thought. But they were both really interesting thoughts. Uh, and then my response to them. So basically, Pete, so Peter posted um, any strategy to defeat the expanding technocracy that does not include counter-economics should be rethought or abandoned. Which is an interesting thought. Okay, I think that to, to, I think you're right when you look at the technocrats. If we do not include counter-economics in our plan, um, we're making a mistake. I agree with the statement completely. But Vin responded to. This more with the the entirety being around counter economics. He said, a successful counter economic strategy won't uh, defeat the expanding technocracy, but it will enable individuals to avoid the worst of its effects. My response to Vin was, bingo, agorism is not going to save the world. It is innate to the human condition. It is something you do, not something you create as a system. It already exists everywhere all the time. You are part of it consciously or unconsciously. The choice is the key. Um, 
again, Pete also made that comment on Facebook. Vin's not really on Facebook much, so um, they didn't exchange any more, any more thoughts on that there. But there was some really good discussion around it. And when I read it, I was like, that's a great topic for today. Because if you've listened to TSP for any length of time, you know that I'm big on what you can do. I always feel like no matter how philosophical a show might be, if we have an individual show that really goes to a high-level philosophy, it's fine. It's great. We're going to do that. We're going to vacillate between you know philosophy and hard skills uh, from time to time because how we think is as important as what we do on, on some levels and how we think has a lot to do with what we do. But if, if you come away from a show like this and you're like, I didn't get one thing out of that hour with Jack, that I can do for myself. I didn't learn one new piece of information that I can apply. Like All of that was great, but I didn't get anything concrete material for me to do, or at least put in the knowledge bank so when it comes up, I have it and I can act on it. Then I have failed. I'm big on actions. So when I talk about counter-economics, uh, agorism, etc., the gray market, the black market, etc., I'm really talking more about what you can do. There, there are agorists who are huge on their philosophy the same way that you can be huge on libertarian philosophy when you first hear about it, almost to the point of being uh, infected with something I call Messiah Complex. And, and I did this when I first heard the message of libertarianism. Uh, fortunately, it was before I started TSP, and I had already kind of pulled back a little bit on it by the time I started TSP, because I think it might have derailed the early show if I had been too focused on, hey, if we all do this, instead of, hey, this is what you can do. But when you first hear about libertarianism, if you've never heard about it before, and I don't just mean the philosophy, but the fact that there is a libertarian party, there is an option. There are even some politicians that are elected that are indeed libertarians. That there is a choice between, you know, Democrat and Republican. There actually is a third option. And that third option actually makes sense. And that third option actually sounds like what most people really think. Do whatever you want as long as you're not hurting anybody else and don't ask me to pay for it. And, you know, when I first heard of libertarianism, all this social justice warrior nonsense woke bullshit had not happened yet. So we had, you hadn't really exposed the underbelly of how screwed up society really was. So it really sounded like, hey, most people actually think this way. No, they don't. But you think they do because you do. Even when your whole life for somebody to tell you this. So then you become deep into reading everything you can. And if I just find the right words to tell my buddy, he'll see that he really is a libertarian. Without an understanding that, number one, no one gets saved until they want to be saved, if you want to make it evangelical, right? Stick with the Messiah thing. Um, number two, maybe he's not. No, Maybe he's not. Maybe he's not ready, but maybe he's just not. Maybe your brother isn't. Maybe your sister isn't. Maybe they, they don't really think that way. Maybe they really do like being controlled. Maybe they really do believe that control is the way. Maybe they do think that people should be given something for nothing. Maybe they do. A lot of people do. So you have to come at this not from, if we get everybody to do this, things will be better, with how can I use this to make things better for me. I recently saw somebody on, uh, I think Pete was the guy that posted about it um, on Facebook that said something like, An An anarchism is a good theory, but in the end, they always, they're not really anarchists because they always do what's in their own self-interest. My response to that was, that word doesn't mean what you think it means. And I think it would apply to a lot of the, the words in the sentence the guy tried to construct. But I'm an anarchist partially because I believe in the end that people do what best serves their own interest. 
That, that's why I'm an anarchist. Because I don't believe that you can give anybody a title or a position or a power where they won't act still in their own self-interest. So that the more power that we give to any entity or any individual or any group of individuals, the worse it gets for everybody else. Because everybody does inevitably act primarily in their own self-interest. That's actually the reason or the case for agorism, anarchism, voluntarism, libertarianism. Because nobody's a saint, nobody ever will be a saint. Therefore, if there is to be anything even approaching a state, it should be for the preservation of individual liberty and not for the inaction of power against any individual. But it's not going to happen, because if, two, the, the, the biggest two-letter word in the English language. So we'll talk about that more in just a minute. Before we do, let's go ahead here from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor today, number one today, is Ready-Made Resources, all the resources you need for your prepping. Ready-Made, ready to go at the company that does what they say and says what they do. ReadyMadeResources.com. Check them out today. They're like a superstore for everything prepping. Next up today, KnifeKits.com. Um... If you're going to be an agorist, you have to have some skill. You have to know how to do things. There's so much that you can do to add value to things. And there's, uh, there's soft skills and there's hard skills. And I think a good agorist has a combination of both. And a hard skill is knowing how to finish a piece of wood, knowing how to work with metal, knowing how to use epoxy, knowing how to make something that's dull into something that's sharp. Knowing how to make something look beautiful and functional. You know what? You can practice all of those skills and develop all of those skills by making knives at knifekits.com. Check them out today, knifekits.com. They are a great company. They've been with us a long time. And, uh, man, they passed with flying colors when we vetted them. We went to the blade forums and stuff like that and asked people about them, and no one had a negative thing to say. And, you know, after working with them now for, like, nine years, I can tell you that there's a reason. They're just a great, stellar company. Check them out at knifekits.com. Remember, ready-made and knife kits both do discounts for MSB members. With that, let's get into the uh, the show and start out with a quote. As I said, Samuel Konkin, who is just an author you should read, uh, a New Libertarian Manifesto and, and several other works, totally approachable, easy to read, not very long, um, probably the best entry ramp into the concept of agorism uh, that you can find. And the quote that I have from him today is from a New Libertarian Manifesto, and it is a very simple sentence, and it comes from a pretty long paragraph that's unnecessary. Because if you are a thinking person... Everything you need to know, honestly, about agorism is in this one sentence. And everything you need to know about counter-economics. Here's what he said. The counter-economy is the sum of all non-aggressive human action which is forbidden by the state. That's it. Anything that is not aggressive. So if I'm hiring you to kill somebody, that's not in the counter-economic theory because it doesn't match with the principle of non-aggression. Okay. So if there's somebody over there minding their own business, I don't like the way he looks, wears the wrong T-shirt or something, I pay you to kill him, doesn't qualify. Anything that's non-aggression that we exchange value for value for is part of counter-economics if it's forbidden by the state. And this spills into both black and gray markets. Um, a gray market is something where what you're doing is illegal, but the thing itself is not illegal. That's the easiest, most simplified way to understand that. So let's start off with something that is clearly would be a black market. Let's say that you um, 
you make speed, methamphetamine. I don't think you should. I think meth is probably one of the worst drugs ever to enter society, but it's convenient because it's fully and wholly illegal to sell methamphetamine on the street, right? It's almost kind of a bad one because you can find a loophole here and say, Jack, you're wrong because some of the pharmaceutical stuff, yeah, 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 I get it. But meth itself is illegal. I don't think you can go anywhere and get legal crystal meth. So you're making crystal meth and selling it to your buddy down the street who's a tweaker. Okay, I'm not even saying that you should not be allowed to do it. I don't think you should, and I don't think he should do it. And I think meth is bad, okay? But I don't necessarily think there's a law about that because you're going to go do it anyway. That is a black market thing. If your buddy is then found to have the meth in his possession, it's still illegal. If you're caught with the meth before you sell it, it's illegal. There is no way for you to partake in this or be part of this at any level that's legal. The entire thing is illegal. Therefore, that is a black market product. Let's look at a different concept. Um, say we're in a state where they have legalized cannabis. And they've even legalized you growing your own cannabis. They say you can have, like some states say you can have four plants in your house. And they tell you certain things you have to do to be able to do that. And they put regulations around it, which you're going to find regulations are really important to modern agorism versus what you would call classical agorism. So now I am allowed to possess cannabis. I'm allowed to grow cannabis. I'm even allowed to give you some cannabis. It doesn't become illegal, in my understanding, in most of these states. Maybe I'm not supposed to transfer it at all. I don't, I don't know, because where I live, we haven't gotten even to that stage yet. But let's say that I live in a state like Washington, and let's say it's totally legit that you come over to my house and I just hand you some cannabis for free. I, again, I could be wrong about that. Just assume that I'm right, okay? Um, at that point, everything's legal. One way or another, I can be in a state that has legalized cannabis for recreational use beyond medical and if i get stopped by a police officer he searches me finds a, uh, a half an ounce of cannabis on me i don't even get a ticket it's not illegal i can possess it uh, i can grow it i can have it i can go to a dispensary and i can buy it but i can't legally without licensure and all this other bullshit sell it to you it's still illegal for us to partake in that activity that was going on long before all these legal structures were set up to make a, a legal version of it. It's still not legal for that to happen. But the thing itself is legal. You got it? That's a gray market. And gray markets get re grays are shades, right? We can be almost all the way to white, which is we, we'll use for the purpose of this discussion, totally legal and done within the state's framework, but not quite. To just to the edge of truly black market. It can be anywhere in between there. So you can think about a, a, a million things that are completely innocuous that are gray market. Let's say, let's look at my job, one of my first jobs I had when I was a teenager. I worked for a guy named Muskrat Purcell, and he had a junkyard. And I pulled parts off cars, and I put them in bins for customers. That's what I did. So I would go in, a lot of times I never even see the guy. He would just have a list for me. I had a key. I'd go in the office, and there'd be a list. Uh, this car is over here. I need the starter motor off of it. And I'd go out there, and it's like down in the dirt, and I'd have to go through all kinds of shit to be able to jack the car up enough to access the starter motor and get it off. And breaking stuff wasn't necessarily okay, even though it was a junk car, because that other thing might be necessary. So I got smart. And when I was pulling parts that required me to pull other parts, the parts that I had to pull off, 
I would then put somewhere, and that way I could go back and get them very quickly if they showed up on a future parts list. I kept my own notes and stuff like that. That was my first job. Okay, nothing about that is illegal, is it? Muskrat Purcell ran, his real name was Muskrat, Muskrat Purcell ran a real um, junk, uh, junk, what do you call it, junk store, junk store, a junk, junk car operation, a scrapyard. I don't know why it went out of my head there for a second. Ran a real scrapyard. Um, it was above board. People knew where it was. A big sign, Muskrat Purcell scrapyard type thing. Uh, he was advertised in the yellow pages when that was the thing. People called him and bought parts. I'm sure at least on some levels he played nice with government. And paid taxes and stuff because he had a legitimate business, if you want to use the term for that. Uh, I'm sure a lot of it was also in the gray. Okay? But I was definitely in the gray. And the reason I was in the gray is I was simply paid under the table. He paid me per part. It would say, pull this starter motor, pays you $5. And I would pull all my parts, put them in the bins, and lock the place back up. And I would get on my bike and I'd go home with a pocket full of money from last week's work. See? What he would do is he had an envelope, and he would put cash money in that envelope, and he put it in a spot in a drawer where if you were able to break in there, you would never find it. And it was, you know, I was a kid. I didn't make that much money anyway. Might be 40, 50 bucks in there. And I would take the money, and I would leave my list, everything I pulled, and any notes for him, like, uh, that part actually isn't on that car. That We don't have one of those. Uh, I pulled it, but I think it's broken. There's a crack in the housing, whatever. And then next week, there would be a payment and a new list. Well, that was a gray market because he was paying me without doing payroll taxes, without workers' comp, without any of that stuff. And I was 15 years old, so I'm pretty sure I wasn't even supposed to be doing the job. And hold on to that thought because as we go through this, we're going to come back to that very thing when it comes to the fact that this is universal, innate human behavior that everybody on the political spectrum from extreme right to extreme left seems to actually agree with until it's somewhere else other than their own backyard. Which is why I'm saying you either... Everybody is participating from time to time in counter-economics. Everybody's part of this, and everybody's okay with it. The thing is, are you doing it consciously or unconsciously? And the choice is the key. But I want to start out with the evolution of an anarchist, libertarian, agorist, voluntarist, whatever, anything that goes in that camp. What usually happens is that person is either relatively content, considering themselves to be a liberal or a conservative. I don't find a lot of people that become anarchists, libertarians, etc., that already start out as a political atheist. It seems like a lot of political atheists just stay that way. They just don't care about government, they just deal with it, they figure it's a thing that is, and they don't they don't really care about which sides. And, and if you actually force them, they have a side. They really are left or right of center. But they just don't care enough. They know their vote doesn't really count. It's not going to change anything, so they just go on with their life. Usually the people that convert, that become active anarchists or active voluntarists that, that are pretty clear about what they are, start off some political stripe and being somewhat entrenched in it. But they're never fully happy. The person that's on the left is like, well, I believe in you know more compassionate things or whatever justifies that for them. But there's also things about their own side that they just really don't like. They just don't like those things less than they don't like the things about the other side. And conversely with people on the right. Eventually, they, and it's usually libertarianism is the gateway into anarchism, right? 
Because libertarianism is not anarchism, but yes, it is. And I guess the way to sum that up is, in my opinion, not all libertarians are, all, are anarchists, but all anarchists are libertarians. Anarchism is libertarianism and its full expression, with, with no, no buts. So since you say, well, I'm a libertarian, but, okay, you're probably a libertarian, but you're not an anarchist. You're a minarchist often. So they become a libertarian first, and they get Messiah syndrome. And then, because no one listens, and because they're like, wait, I just found out about this wonderful thing. If you only knew this wonderful thing that I know. See why I call it Messiah Syndrome, right? Um, and then they go off and they start blathering, and, and nobody listens to them. So they think, I know. I just I need to read books. I need to listen to YouTube videos. I need to learn more about this thing. So Because I'm uh, clearly, clearly I'm not explaining it right. You probably are, but you convinced yourself you weren't, because it's not hitting people the way it hit you. Because they're not looking for it, and you were. In time, you will let go of that, but you will tend to become quite intellectual. You'll read a lot. You'll study a lot. You'll come up with a lot of cases for. You'll study case law and how uh, these things actually uh, go against common law and how we can argue these things in court, maybe, and actually prevail to more liberty using the system against itself, judo-like. And no matter what, you'll get very, very big into if I can, if I can know enough. And, and that's a good step. But the problem is that until it meets action, you're not really getting anywhere with it. So then eventually you'll become a person that might retain all the intellectual capacity, but you talk about it and, 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 and study about it a lot less. And you start doing it. And, and like a way to think about it outside of of this world that will make it really clear to you. Imagine you have a person who is like a walking Cabela's and Bass Pro Shops catalog and a walking ballistics table. They know every gun. They know drop tables. They can tell you every projectile from every manufacturer's sectional density from 22 to 45 caliber. They can tell you everything you wanted to ever know about glass and bed and stock and floating a barrel And they're not just intellectual. They actually can do all the stuff that that data goes with. But they keep digging more and more. They want it every time a gun comes out. They want to know that new model, what's different about it, everything. The exact perfect um, weight to set a trigger at for a sniper rifle. They know every, and they ain't fishing too. They got they go into that side of the catalog, and they can tell you every reel and every drag weight and every lure and every fish in North America, and they and they keep studying more and more and more and more. Now you got another guy. Now maybe he actually went through that phase. But right now what he has in his gun cabinet is a busted ass scratched up 3030 with a four power Tasco on it and a, a Weaver flip over mount from 1981. He's got some fiberglass rods and, and Mitchell 300s from the 70s in his back shed. And his smokehouse runs in June. And there's never a year that goes by that that 3030 doesn't bark a few times and, and a deer doesn't fall. And when those rods go out, they bend over, and he comes home with trout and bass, catfish and panfish, and he grows his garden. And our other friend, he knows all about the garden, but you know he's got the little garden instead of the big garden. Now, which one of them's getting more out of it? The the first one may even know more. The first one actually may be able to win more debates, but the second one is going to be picking venison out of his teeth on Thursday night. 
And the first one might too, but the second one's going to do it more often. The second one is the one whose kids are going to be raised on Biltong. Do you see where I'm going with that? And that's this evolution of an anarchist, libertarian, agorist, voluntarist, etc. There's a point at which the thinking, the philosophy, the concepts, the spreading, the evangelism is all great, and it doesn't mean stop doing it, but are you taking action? Are you telling everybody to be an agorist, but you're not participating in a meaningful way in agorism? Right? And, and it's not a negative. It's not a negative. We all have to move through this evolution at our own speed. But I do find there are people that are so worried about the intellect that they are weak on the application. And that's not bad. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with them. It just means they're not getting as much as they could because this isn't about changing the world. It's about acting in your own self-interest. And you can act in your own self-interest without being harmful to other people. In fact... The biggest thing we can do in our self-interest is to use non-aggression on others, to not cheat others, to always be good to other people, to always help others when we can without deeply harming ourselves. We might sacrifice, but we don't sacrifice to the point that my family is hungry. So I'll feed my neighbor as long as I know that next week I can feed my child. That's acting in my self-interest. It's still being charitable and helpful. See how that works? So the short explanation of what is counter-economics, and we kind of started out with a great quote on that, but it's all gray and black markets are counter-economic markets. Anything. Anything the state says, thou shalt not, and then you do. And it doesn't matter which side of the equation you're on with that. If your neighbor is told, thou shalt not make moonshine and sell it to thy neighbor which is pretty much a standard command of the state right now, and you don't give a shit, and your neighbor makes good shine, and you buy his shine, you're part of counter-economics. You're gaining. You believe that that bottle of moonshine, for whatever you paid for it, is worth more to you, for whatever reason you believe that, than the vodka you can buy at the, the state-approved store down the road. If you didn't, you wouldn't buy it. And if you say, but you know what, Jack? I just like the guy. And I just buy stuff because I know, you know, I know he kind of depends on it. And I'm going to buy some alcohol anyway. And I could even buy it for what he makes. I could buy it for the same or less. I do it because, you know, I just want to help him. So, you know, I'm not buying it because I think it's worth more. Yes, you are. You just explained to me why you think it's worth more. You think it's worth more because instead of going to a faceless, nameless company down the street, it goes to your neighbor, which can't help but buy you goodwill. So it doesn't matter where you are in counter-economics, including simply look, you know, minding your own business and looking your own way. You know your neighbor sells hooch to the other neighbor, and you don't give a shit even though you wouldn't buy it and don't really think it's a good idea. You're part of counter-economics. You could be a narc and call the state in and say, hey, my neighbor's selling shine. Now, you would not be operating in your best interest. You want to make an enemy out of a neighbor. You just did it. And usually guys that make shine know how, make shine know how to be uh, not-so-good neighbors if you turn them into that. They, you want to make that guy into an enemy, he's probably pretty good at being an enemy. You don't want him to be an enemy. He doesn't want you to be an enemy. So he doesn't want to tick you off if he knows that you know he knows you know. Because then you might run into the man, so it's in both of you all self-interest to be good to each other. And in that, even without the direct exchange, you're both still participating in counter-economics.
Do you see how that works? Counter-economics is still, though, in our world today, not 100% natural. That's, that's where I think it all breaks down. Counter-economics is only counter if there's something for it to be counter to. It's actually created by government. If government doesn't regulate a market, there's no counter-economics in that market. There's just economics of that market. If the government very, very loosely, barely touches a market, there won't be much of a counter-economic market to it. The more regulations the government assigns to an area, the bigger the gray area becomes, the more counter-economics exist. So let's go back to our buddy that makes moonshine and sells it to his friend. Let's say that the government came out and said, you know what, we were stupid. This is dumb. We're still going to have liquor stores and all, and if you want to have a labeled you know, liquor that sells through distribution, there's a whole world. So there's not no regulations. It's just, it becomes very loose. You can do anything you want. The only time you have to worry about it is if you want to be put into a retail store. Here's the hoops you got to jump through. But if you want to make or buy a still and you want to make gin or vodka or moonshine or call it whatever you want, you want to barrel age it, you want to print out your own labels and stick them on a bottle, as long as you're not selling through retail, go sell all the moonshine you want. That market would not be as valuable as it is today. One of the reasons that my neighbor might buy my moonshine if I was doing such a thing, is that to them it's worth more because the government says they can't do it. They do it out of spite. The more government regulates and taxes a market, the more it becomes a counter-economic market. It's really an attempt to restore natural economics that can never fully happen unless the counter-economists are so numerous that the government gives up and quits. That's the only way. We look at it at cannabis. So we, we, we go from, in Texas, if you were selling me bud, right, that is a black market. It is illegal in Texas for me to possess cannabis and for me to transfer cannabis in any way, shape, or form. If I'm growing it in my house, it's illegal. If I have it in my pocket, it's illegal. Now, it's not if it's a small amount, it's not necessarily that I'm in a lot of trouble, but it is illegal, and I can be cited or arrested for it. All right, so it's black market. It, we move to Washington, and it's gray market. Am I supposed to sell it to you or not? You know, probably not. Okay, therefore it's gray market. But why can you know Bill in Seattle have his plants and get really good at it and grow pounds of bud a year off those four or six plants, whatever it is, and then his, his buddy Tommy will buy his bud? Why? Beyond, hey, he's my buddy and he's got some and it's convenient. Why? Why can, can you know, Bill know Tommy will always be his customer or most likely will always be his customer? And the answer is because Tommy can go down to the dispensary and pay a lot more money for that because the government has put a bunch of taxes and regulatory fees and things like that on it. By doing that, they've artificially inflated the price and now... Tommy, in the gray area, can compete with the state because the state's stuff costs more than it should. And he can actually now sell his product probably for more than he could when it was a fully black market product. Because they've the state has artificially increased the value of a half an ounce of bud. So he can come up to maybe 70% of that. Tommy's still saving a bunch of money. The bud's just as good. Everybody's happy. And it's a lot harder 
for, for, for Bill to get arrested. It's not that he can't. It's just harder because the product is a gray market product. And the stupider the state gets on increasing the price artificially, the bigger the gray market becomes. People drive illegal taxis in New York City because the cost of a cab medallion is, is you know, a million dollars. You don't see a lot of illegal taxi cabs that run around Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, Uber and Lyft have totally altered that situation a great deal, but you, you kind of get the point if you think about it that way. The more you create for me an artificially inflated market, the more I can benefit from a gray market. I've talked about this before, but there's a guy who lives across the street from me, one house down and across the street. He sells fireworks legally. Just to be clear, he's got a stand that he has a deal with the neighbor down the road about half a mile because he's got a much better place for a stand. He sets up a stand there twice a year around 4th of July and around New Year's. And there's a window that the state says he's allowed to open. He pays them a lot of money for a permit. And he sells fireworks. He thinks fireworks are the greatest thing in the world. He loves fireworks. He only works three weeks a year, and he pays for his whole life selling fireworks. He's the last person that wants fireworks to become legal for sale for everybody. He has a protectionist racket going. I don't begrudge him. He's working the system. But if they said everybody can sell fireworks anytime they want to, well, guess what? His cushy living is gone. Understanding the counter-economic theory is to understand that the more they do, especially the more they do to artificially inflate the price with the less risk to you, the better, especially if you can build risk into the system. There's a lot of people that ran illegal taxis in New York that just said the fine is so much less than the medallion that I don't care. I'm better off this way. They build the risk into the price, which good, smart business people do anyway. There's always risk. But you'll never have a natural agora, a natural market. Agora is simply the market, as long as you have government interference. And the gray markets, the black markets, the counter-economics are an attempt to somewhat restore natural order, which is simply that you and I agree that this thing is worth this much. But supply and demand will never leave the picture in that. And if it's something relatively easy to do, and the only reason I'm only one of the few people doing it is technically it's not supposed to be done, I'm going to command more for that product or service than if everybody's allowed to do it if it's relatively easy to do. See how simple that is? So we have to have all that in mind when we participate in this. Here's some examples of counter-economics at your homestead individual level, right? Um, one, anything you can sell or trade that you don't pay tax on in reality is a counter-economic. Now, I really want to think about this because it's not even, it becomes a gray market when you don't report the revenue. Even though it wasn't, you know, well, it wasn't a gray market when it started out. So let's say that you raise ducks like I do and you sell eggs for $8 a dozen like I do. Nothing about that's illegal. Not in my state anyway. Any state inspector any bureaucrat, anybody that wants to can come to my little farm and say, well, where's your ducks? Well, there they are. Well, there's not it's something like 2,000 birds or something before I need a license. There's like 25 of them. Okay. How do, you, how do you collect your eggs? They lay the eggs, we pick them up and put them in an egg carton. What kind of egg carton is it? It's an unmarked, unbranded egg carton. For one use only. Okay. And how, who do you sell? We sell direct to the consumer. How do you store your eggs? In a refrigerator. 
It's pretty much everything that exists that regulates it we comply with right there. And anybody that came by, no one ever did because it ain't worth their time, would come by and go, yeah. The day you take your eggs and sell them to Fred and don't report that revenue to the IRS, you just entered the world of agorism. You just went into a gray market. Everything you've done is legal up to that point, but the second you don't report the revenue, you're not playing by the government's rules. You are the person who, in this, you know, in the lead-up to the Revolutionary War, said, screw the Stamp Act, I'm not, put, I'm not paying for the stamp to put on this thing. An act of rebellion. That's agorism. Anything. You cut your neighbor's hair. They pay you. You don't report the revenue. Guess what? You're an agorist. See? It doesn't matter what it is. Um, homemade hooch. I talked about this, but, you know, moonshine. But not just moonshine. What about mead? I make really good mead. What if I... Uh, it's not me. It's a friend of mine. Really, it really is a friend of mine. What if a friend of mine makes mead, really good mead, and he goes to events that people come to, and whenever he does that, he comes with a, his whole back of his truck with boxes of nicely bottled meads, and he pours a bunch of mead. Some of you know who this is, right? And he pours a bunch of mead for people to try for free. Everything's now legal. He can make the mead. He can transport the mead. It's his mead. He can give it away. Uh, but when he gets to this place and he does these mead samplings, he then says, hi, hey, in the back of my truck are X bottles of this and Y bottles of that and Z bottles of that, and I have them available at $10 a bottle. It just became a gorist. It just became counter-economics. He can't even pay the taxes on it and make it white market, can he? Because he's selling unlicensed alcoholic beverages. He's probably violated two different states' laws and federal law at the same time. No one gives a shit, though. This is, this is why this is so powerful, and we're going to have a tale of two neighbors in a minute to explain how powerful it is. What about reloading ammo for friends? Let's say if I set up Jack's Reloading Emporium and started reloading ammo for people, there's a, I have to have basically a, a, a federal firearms license to do this legally. And there's a lot of things I have to comply with to be able to do this. I'm manufacturing ammunition is the way the government looks at it. So if I were to put an advertisement, you know, JJ's Reloading. JJ's a nickname I used to go by, by the way, for Jack Jr. Um, so if I do that and I'm wide open about it, I'm going to get caught. Because sooner or later somebody's like, hey, man, have you ever gone to JJ's? And some fed's going to go, let me check JJ's Reloading Emporium. And they're going to go and pull and see who I am and if I'm registered as a business or not. And they're going to see that I, I'm not and I don't have an FFL. And I'm clearly manufacturing ammunition and selling it. And they're going to come take me away to a place I don't want to go. But if I'm smart about design, what if the way I'm doing this is I have a bunch of friends. And I say to my friend, uh, Dale, you know, have you ever thought about reloading? And Dale goes, yeah, I just don't have the time. And I say, you know, you can have custom loads and stuff like that if you're a reloader and save some money and all. Dale was, yeah, no, I'd, I'd love to do it. I just don't have the time. I said, Dale, well, what are you shooting? I shoot 270. And I said, Dale, you know, I, uh, I don't have the reloading dies for a 270 because I don't have one. But I love the 270, and I'd, I'd love to work up some loads in it for you. What if you buy the dies and you give them to me? And uh, if you ever decide you want to start reloading, I'll just give them back to you. Because we, we both know Dale is never going to ask for them back. You know? Um, so you give me the dies, 
and I'll hold on to them for you. And you pay for the, the components, and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll reload ammo for you. Maybe I'll load up ten different loads, and uh, you take them to the, the range and, and fire them all and record your results from them and bring me all that brass back. Because you're going to, you know, I explained fire forming and neck sizing only, and I'm going to have all that brass is going to be Dale's brass that's all going to be fire formed to your, your Winchester Model 70, and I'll keep working that up till we find Dale's load, and then from then on, I will, I will provide you with your, your load, and you know, you just pay for the components. And I happen to actually charge you a little more. They're your components, they're sitting here, they belong to Dale, and maybe. You just happen to be paying a little more for them than they actually cost. But they're in a box that says Dale's stuff. It, technically, what I'm doing is illegal. It's going to be very hard to make a case against me for that. Very hard. Because I'm just helping out a friend. And maybe I have ten friends like that. And maybe that puts, I don't know, 50 bucks a month in my pocket, $600 that the government doesn't get. And that's technically illegal. But you're going to have a very hard time making a case. And I, I'm not worth it. So that's another thing. If you do this right, you're not worth it. You're not worth the effort. There's not enough there. The G-Man doesn't have time to try to... Because it's everywhere all the time. It's like playing whack-a-mole, except you've got one hammer and there's five million moles. You know? I mean, it, it really is. And like it's like that, that episode of um, Big Bang Theory where Sheldon's popping up and the ball's going bazinga. The mole is way over there. And by the time you get over there, that mole, this mole pops up and goes bazinga. That's another example, you know, reloading ammo for friends and being creative about the way that you do it. Um, I don't have it in my notes, but it just makes me realize that things like, you know, Vin, was, Vin is a male escort, right? Um, that whole business, male and female both. Um, and just for those who don't know who Vin is, straight male escort. Not that it's that important that I point that out, but maybe he would want me to. I don't know. Um The way that that business is conducted today, it's very difficult to bust somebody for prostitution because of the way everything is phrased, the way everything is done, the way people have websites that advertise, and you can't get them. Right? You could if it was really worth it, but it really isn't because they've designed it in a way that makes it not really worth it for the feds or the local states or whatever to go anymore because now they're not streetwalkers anymore. You see how that works? So it's designing your way out of it. Um, selling your farmstead, homestead produce. The minute you're not paying tax on it, or the minute you're doing it in any way that the government says thou shalt not and thou shalt anyway, it's agorism. Selling prepared foods. A lot of that now falls under cottage food laws, but a hell of a lot of things don't. And there's even been cases of people getting busted for it. I, I doubt that it was life-altering, though. It's somebody making a point. You know, but there's people doing all making tacos and delivering them to a to a, a, an office or something like that. That's agorism. Selling livestock, live or dead, outside the system, is agorism. There's a million examples of it. And the reason this approach is so powerful is because, again, what I said in response to Vin. Let me read that for you again. Bingo. Agorism is not going to save the world. It's innate to the human condition. It is something you do, not something you create as a system. It already exists everywhere all the time. You are part of it consciously or unconsciously. The choice is the key. And that's the truth, really. You are doing this one way or another. So let's talk about the tale of two neighbors and one agorist. One practicing agorist. Let's say the agorist is Jack Spearco. Now, I don't have neighbors like this. 
So it's not, this is not a true story. This is a hypothetical story. I'm just going to say that it is me because I'm going to use all stuff that I do. So let's say that I have um, right-wing Tom and left-wing Sam on each side of me as neighbors. And I go to right-wing Tom, and right-wing Tom says, Hey, Jack, uh, you know, I heard you reload. I go, yeah. He goes, I'd like to get some reloads from my 30-06. And, and I start my little reloading operation with Tom. And Sam, very left-wing, progressive man, Bernie bro, man, he's... Yeah. No, man, I'm not voting for Biden. Let me tell you something about Biden. Biden's just like Trump. I'm a Bernie bro. I'll always be a Bernie bro. And I'm sorry the Bernie thing. Like, he's a Bernie bro, and he's mad at Bernie for saying to vote for Biden. He's that far left. And turns out that, you know, I have a little closet, and inside that little closet I grow a certain plant. And the Bernie bro, Sam, he's big on the plant, so I start selling bud to the Bernie bro. He's not asking me if I'm paying Uncle Sam tax on that. He doesn't care. In time, I might end up selling both of them produce from my backyard. In time, I might sell them both fish. In time, I might have a big old to-do and have them both come hang out for it, charge them money to be there, and they might consume an awful lot of alcohol without a TABC-approved bartender in, in, in attendance distributing it. But they didn't really buy the alcohol, but they paid to be there, and the alcohol, you see how that works. Like I said, remember when you were a kid and you paid two bucks for the Red Solo Cup at the keg party? Same thing. Now here's the thing. Sam and Tom don't give a shit. In fact, Sam, who thinks Tom's politics are complete crap, and vice versa, by the way, he can probably eat, he probably don't even like guns, but he's probably not calling the man because he found out I loaded a box of freaking ammo for him. Neither one of them give a shit. And if I hire Sam... Because he's all into the gardening and go, dude, I've got some beds that need to be dug up. And I don't I don't have time. And he's like, man, I just got laid off from work due to COVID. And I say, well, those beds, I need them turned. Uh, I'll give you $20 a bed. There's three beds at $60. Bucks. And Sam's like, yeah, man, I'll do that. And I say, okay, well, I'll give you $60. Bucks, and hey, once we plant some stuff, you know me, I'll throw some stuff over the fence to you. Technically, by the letter of the law, what is Sam supposed to do? He's supposed to report to the IRS, earn $60 shoveling dirt. Here's my tax on it. Sam, even though he might be for UBI and Bernie bro shit, he's not doing that. Why? Because innately, he's an agorist, even if he doesn't call himself that. See, both of those neighbors are going to do that. Remember my story about working for Muskrat Purcell? Where I grew up in, in central Pennsylvania, you might think with a million deer hunters that central Pennsylvania would be conservative as all get out. Well, let me tell you something, especially in the 1980s, before the government had totally lost their mind on gun control, and the Democrats had totally lost their minds on gun control with wanting to control everything, central PA was Democrat ground zero. The reason I am I was born John and I am called Jack is I'm, my, so is my father. I'm John Jr., called Jack. Right? John and Jack are really the same name. Um, my father was the same. And the reason my grandparents named my dad John and called him Jack is they practically thought JFK, John F. Kennedy, was God. That's how Democrats' centralized mindset, that area that I come from, was. And you know what? All those good Democrats who thought the rich should pay their fair share said 
when they heard young Spirico was pulling parts under the table for Muskrat Personal, good for you, boy. You keep that money. You don't let them take it from you. Isn't that interesting? All these people constantly were saying the rich should pay and everybody should pay their fair share. They believed it. They sure got their taxes taken out of their paycheck. But the minute any of them got an opportunity to work under the table, they did it, and they told you you were smart for doing it, especially when you don't need no income on paper. Boy, you're 15 years old. You just you just keep that money. When you get older and you get a job, you do your side jobs. You keep that under the table, too. Isn't that interesting? Left-wing statists. Hey, that, that, that agorist, they didn't know that's what they were saying, but they were saying, you're a good agorist, young Spirico. Because it's innate. Are you conscious of it is the only question. Not are you part of it. Everybody is on some level a part of the counter-economy. It's that big already. We don't need to make it into something. We just need to harness it. It's already there. Did you ever pay somebody to pick you up a six-pack when you was a teenager and couldn't do it for yourself? Agorism! See? Agorism. Did you ever do that? Okay, agorism. Did you ever go to the keg party and pay two bucks for the red cup? Four bucks, whatever it is today? Agorism. Your buddy ever have some beer at the house and you felt guilty about drinking his beer so you left him five bucks? Technically, you just both broke the law, agorism, and he broke it multiple times. He transferred alcoholic beverages for a fee and he didn't report the income. Agorism. No one gives a shit. No one cares. When I was a kid, there was another guy local to us. He ran an ice cream shop. I doubt that guy paid a dollar in income tax, and pretty much everybody knew it, and no one gave a shit. Another guy that lived up the road from my grandfather, I've talked about him on the show before, Buddy Shoemaker, made wine. The way he made wine was you brought him your stuff, and he made wine and gave you half of it. Agorism. No one gave two shits. Total broads, because even though I said it was Democrats, I said there's Republicans there. From political atheist, libertarian, Republican, Democrat, everybody knew Buddy Shoemaker, everybody thought his wine was great. No one gave two shits. Agorism. Do you harness it? It's all based on your actions. Do you choose to participate as consumer or producer or not? Or do you just go willy-nilly not even seeing it when it's right in front of your face? It's all based on what you do. And you can always win if you're a good designer. There's a way to do almost anything that you want to do and make it very difficult for anybody to really do anything about it. And if they do, to do it in such a way that you might get a fine. And if you fine me $50 for something I made $500 doing, I just consider it the cost of doing business. I'm not advocating legal behavior. I'm advocating human behavior. In fact, I'm just advocating if you're going to engage in the behavior that you're probably already engaging in, you do it intelligently. It's one thing that's, that, 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 that Frank grows some bud and sells it to Tom. They probably shouldn't make the exchange in front of the police department. And they probably shouldn't phone up the, the, the Fox News local and say, hey, I'm selling my bud and there's nothing anybody can do about it. That would be stupid. He shouldn't do that. But is the exchange happening in the world of non-aggression? Is anybody forcing anybody 
to do anything in this situation. No, in fact, the only aggression that exists exists on the side of the state who will use guns with force if the situation arises to a point where the state feels it needs to intervene. The only use of force in these equations is use of force by the state, which is forced by proxy from cowards who want someone to enforce their will but do not have the guts to do it themselves. And the government, the more they do, the more profitable agorism becomes. The grayer the market, if you can design smartly into it, the more money you can make on it. It's kind of crazy. You'd think it'd be better for people who want to engage in these behaviors if the government did less. The more the government does, especially outside of enforcement, the more the government does to intervene in the so-called legitimate business, the more the government does to increase their cost of doing business, the better for the, the, better for the people who stay out of the legitimate side of the business. <clears throat> Why do you think that guy, I can't remember his name now, the guy that got strangled fighting off cops for selling cigarettes, big dude in New York, um, tragic thing, never had to happen. But why do you think you could have some guy you don't know standing out on the streets of New York selling loose cigarettes for a dollar a cigarette, able to do it? Because a damn pack of cigarettes in downtown New York costs $9, that's why. And guess who made the phone call and said, hey, this guy's out here selling Lucy's? The guy with the shop who's paying for the shop and paying for the freaking all the cost of doing business to sell them. It wasn't some guy walking down the streets like, hey, man, I need to call 911. I see a guy selling cigarettes. No one gave two shits. That's why it was a bad business plan. It wasn't designed well. You know you're going to get the cops showing up when you do that. Just something to think about. People will participate in agorism while swearing they disagree with the principle. You can tell somebody you're an agorist and explain what it is, and tell, they'll tell you, ah, yeah, 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 yeah. And they're doing it. And they think it's a great thing. They don't think it's a bad idea until it's happening over there. Nobody tends to object to agorism within their personal moral code when it's in their backyard. Generally, they don't even care when it's across the street. Trust me, nobody called up the IRS and turned in Muskrat Purcell because he was paying me under the table. He's dead now, and I'm pretty sure I'm past statute of limitations on that, so I can tell that story publicly and not worry about it. I still don't think anybody's going to run off and say, hey, I listened to this the IRS, i got to turn the guy in. i got to do it. The year was 1987. Wait, maybe it was 1986. Anyway, he was 15. His name's Jack Spierko. He used to pull parts off of old Pontiacs and Buicks. He never paid no taxes on that. First of all, the IRS can go, what? But who's going to do that? I don't have haters and who's going to do that. Why? Because you don't object to it. You don't actually see a problem with a 15-year-old kid riding his bike to a junkyard pulling parts. If you're a Karen, you might think, well, that's not very safe. He could get hurt. He could cut himself, and there'd be no one there to help him or whatever. But unless there's something deeply psychologically wrong with you, 99% of people don't give two shits that that kid's making money under the table. That's why it's powerful. People don't actually object to it. Even if they say they're not an agorist, they are. 
You can't say you're not an agorist while you're an agorist and really be, be correct. If I say, do you drink? If I say, do, are you a, a drinker? And I mean alcohol. And you say, nope, I'm not a drinker. And I say, well, you never drink alcohol? Well, on Fridays I have a couple beers. You're a drinker. Well, what I mean is, I don't care what you mean. You are a consumer of alcoholic beverages. You are a drinker. You may be a light drinker, not a heavy drinker. Well, I only drink a few times a year at social occasions. So you're a social drinker. You're still a drinker. Now, I don't believe in drinking all the time. But that doesn't matter what you believe in. What you do is what you are. See? In the 80s, we just did call it working under the table, and everybody thought it was a great idea. Side hustle is not a new thing. We just didn't call it that back then. We called it side jobs, extra work, part-time work. And almost anything that fell under that umbrella was gray market because I guarantee you anybody in the coal region that was going out over to somebody's house to, to, to take care of work for them was not paying taxes on it. And we can be participants in this in so many ways. I love to fish, and I love to take guided fishing trips. And my, my tip to a guide is proportional not just to how good a job he does for me, but I have one guy, he's a good friend, And I love him, and I'll, I'll, I'll take trips with him, and I always tip, but I don't tip as much as I would if he was smart with his money, because I believe money goes where it's treated well does not just pertain to you know national governments. I believe that I have money, and I spend my money as a money steward based on the value of where that money is going in totality, not just what's coming back to me. So this one friend of mine who's a fishing guy basically hardly deducts shit that he could deduct, He deducts his boat payment and stuff like that, his fishing license and whatever. But, I mean, as a fishing guide, you can deduct so much. And when you pay him a tip in cash, he reports it on his revenue. As soon as I heard that, his tips went down. You treat money poorly. You give it to government. Who you don't, who he hates. He hates the government. But he does that because he thinks it's the right thing to do because for some twisted reason he thinks the Bible tells him to do it due to one verse and because he's afraid he'll get audited. Whatever. Fine. I'll tip you 20 bucks instead of 50 bucks today. Because you treat money poorly. I have another guy that I take trips with in Sanibel, Florida when we go out there. He's very smart. We have long, in-depth conversations about how to structure deductions on those trips. And what I said, because I was talking about this other guy, and I said, you don't report your tips, do you? He said, I report money that runs through my merchant account only. And when I first said, you don't report your tips, he rolled his eyes. I thought he was going to fall out of the boat. He rolled them so hard. His tip just went up. He treats money well. So I make a conscious decision to tip him better because he understands the concept of agorism. He's more valuable to me as a guide because I know when I give him money, it's going to go to work for the things that I believe in and agree with, not the things I disagree with. See, I'll pay somebody more if they're an agorist Not just because I want to do business with them, but because I know that that money is not going to have a piece of it go to the state. I'm going to deny the state that piece of treasure. And if he's an agorist, consciously or unconsciously, if he's an active agorist, he's probably doing business with other agorists, and that money might get spent with another agorist and repeat that cycle. And we're not going to starve the beast to death like this. But I do have the ability to make a choice that in this part of my life, 
The money I'm spending could have a portion go to the beast, but it doesn't. It's that simple. I'm doing it for my own self-interest. I don't like helping the beast. There's things the government does that I find reprehensible. Even if you can make a case, there's some things the government does that aren't that bad. Okay, fine. The roads. Okay, you know, I've said long ago, if we could have a government, all they did was build roads and bridges, I'd be okay with it. The schools. I can't go that far, but even if I, if I could and make a deal, okay, you have schools and roads and you don't do anything else, I would make that deal to get rid of all the rest of government. Sure. Sure. No problem. No problem whatsoever. Um, in the end, though, you need to do what makes sense for you. When it makes sense for you, not because you're an agorist. So I don't believe in purism. I don't believe in being a purist. I believe that purism is fine for philosophy, but it's not practical for action. So I buy a lot of stuff that is completely above board in the mainstream market, and I buy a significant amount from Amazon, who's the epitome of the technocracy. Okay? Sure I do. That's fine. Because the stuff that I want is there, and somebody will bring it to my house, and it works for me. And it, let's be honest. If I want a gallon of hydroponic fertilizer, I don't have a neighbor who is making it to buy it from. If I did. And if it was as good or better than the, 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 the gallon jug on Amazon and cost the same or even a little bit more, I'd buy it from them. So I'm not going to do things below the board under the table just because I'm an agorist. I'm going to do them below the table when they make sense. I have ammunition I bought from Remington, not from my reloading buddy. Because that's what I needed, and it was available, and it was affordable, and it made sense for me. We do report our revenue from farm income because it goes on a Schedule F, and gee, when we focus on the 90%, we lose money. And I'm making some big-ass hair quotes, but it's okay because it's their system. So why would I go agorist when I could get a deduction? See? I'm not doing it just because. I'm doing it because it makes sense. I have to evaluate the risk. How much trouble am I in? If this doesn't go right, how do I mitigate that trouble? And is it worth taking the risk? That's agorism. And we all do it every day. Technically, when you make a decision to drive 60 in a 50, because you're going to get there faster and it's worth it to you to take that risk, you're, in a way, practicing agorism. You're just doing it internally. You're violating a law and you're making an evaluation. Now, ah, get a ticket. So... Now, if you're doing 60 in a 20 where kids play, you're an asshole and you need your ass beat. Because now you're violating the principle of non-aggression. You're putting other lives at risk. We all know when the road is long and flat and straight and they set the limit at 50 just so they can write tickets and you can see and you've got visibility and you're doing 60, you're not, ind you're not endangering anybody's life. You're really not. We all know that. That's why when you see the guy driving 60 miles an hour on that road, you don't call 911. But you might if you see the guy on the same road doing 120, weaving it, weaving like he's going to go off the road, because you know it might kill somebody. You're making a conscious decision based on a risk assessment. you got to do the same thing with your agorist activities. This is a philosophy of America that until the early 1900s, it persisted heavily. Almost everybody in the American continent 
from the very first colonists all the way up until about the turn of the 18th to the 1900s, almost everybody was some level of agorist, actively. Because passively, again, it's everywhere all the time, whether you're conscious of it or not. But, I mean, everybody was an entrepreneur, and everybody had little things that they did. And anybody would have looked at you funny if you said, well, I went over and bailed hay for Farmer Tom, and I told the government and gave them their share of my money. They would have like, what is wrong with you? Are you stupid? And it persisted all through the 1900s and even until now. But it waned almost continuously. Oddly, really, when you look at the history of this country, about 1913 is when the decline in this mindset really began, when we started printing money through the banks with the Federal Reserve. Odd. Not so much. And really, after World War II, when the shortages went away and things got easy and everybody was high on patriotism in America and blah, 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 about the only thing left was the drug trade. It's interesting, isn't it? I have a friend that used to sell Bud, and I remember that when I first met him, the guy said, you'll like this guy. He kind of has his own business. I'm like, really? It was like boats or real estate? or No, no, you'll see. And that was the mindset. He has his own business, entrepreneur. <laughs> Well, ain't hurt nobody, didn't bother nobody, wasn't selling meth, you know? That type of thing. But and, and that's what was left of it. But then it became very, in the minds of people, the concept became very illicit because that's the only thing they could point to because they didn't realize, well, the guy at the ice cream shop is an agorist. Buddy Shoemaker that makes wine, he's an agorist. And when you go bail hay for Farmer Tom and put the money in your pocket and go down to the bar and buy the beer without paying the government first, you're an agorist. And when you run, you know, I had a friend, his dad ran poker nights. And he did it, did it right, man. He fed the hell out of people and all. Those guys would play poker for 40 freaking hours straight. His daughters act like cocktail waitresses. He fed the hell out of them, but he took $2 out of every pot. And he made a lot of money doing it. And guess what? And that's agorism. And no one gave two shits. When you participate in a football pool, you play fantasy football for money with your friends. That's agorism. It's all agorism, right? And it was what everybody did. Everybody did multiple things. And I'm going to tell you something. There's a reason I'm doing this show today. When this whole thing started with COVID... My belief was that it would be a relatively short-term reality check for people, and eventually that people would say, you know what, virus or no virus, we just need to go back to work and do, deal with it the best we can. And that's happening to a degree. There's a lot of resistance, though, more than I ever expected, from both government and from sheeple. And I honestly think we're in a point right now like of – expanding diminishing returns is a way to look at it. What do I mean by that? Well, so I think right now, if today you just flipped a switch and went back to the economy running as normal as possible. So that doesn't mean everybody goes back to swap and spit in nightclubs, but you know, you put in certain headcount restrictions and stuff, you see how it goes, but you basically turn the economy back on faster than we're doing. The dimmer switch goes up much quicker. There's a certain amount of time it will take to recover. Now, here's the good news right now. As bad as it is, as, as many people as there are unemployment. I just heard a stat today. This is the highest unemployment rate since 2011. 
That means with the biggest damn Donkey Kong dick punch we've ever consciously given the economy on purpose, we're not doing worse than we were in 2011? Really? That is amazing. And that means we can have a relatively quick, robust recovery, which I think at this point is 18 to 24 months, best case scenario. That doesn't mean it takes that long for the stock market to go back to an all-time high. Because stock markets are speculative in real-world, working, moving economics. I think we're at 18 to 24 months right now because we have so dick-punched the economy. And because we're not going to just turn it back on all at once. But I think we're also reaching a point where it works like this. Every day that we don't do it, we add 10 days to our recovery time. That sounds bad, but maybe not so bad until we put some numbers on it. That means we do this for another 10 days. You just added 100 days to our recovery time. So by doing a third of a month more, you just added a third of a year to our recovery time. But I think it's an expanding, diminishing return. And what I mean by that is, do this for another month, and I think we're starting to look at, like, every day we delay, we're adding 15 days to recovery time, maybe 20. And you get it to a point where each day in the dark adds 20 days of recovery time, and you do 30 days of that, Don't do that math? 600 days, almost two years. And I don't think we're that far away from hitting that point. The good news, the encouragement is, we're really only as bad as we were in 2011? Are you kidding me? Seriously? That is one of the most optimistic things I've ever heard. They said it like, it hasn't been this bad since 2011. I'm like, holy shit, that's great! But, again... How long we stay there is a function of how long we stay here. All right. Um, and I just don't know at this point. And I think we really need to think about what Vin said here as we close up. This is, this is so much why I did this today. A successful counter-economic strategy will not defeat the expending te technocracy, but it will enable individuals to avoid the worst of its effects. There are individuals that no matter how bad things get, are not going to basically give a shit. And they run the, the, the gamut from people like me that are entrepreneurs with multiple irons in the fire and very adaptable, heavily agorist in a lot of ways and heavily above board in a lot of ways. And the more you have above board, the more you get away with below board. That's why the mafia goes legitimate, right? Um, people like Vin. Vin's very much like me, but more effective, I think, and bigger when it comes to uh, entrepreneurial operations, right? Um Just don't care. And there's people that are not conscious of it. They just have the right job in the right place, and this whole economy can go to shit for five years, and it won't affect them. And there's people who are going to get really hurt in the next five to ten years while we go through this. And remember, the flux was coming anyway. The expansion of automation. The transition of multiple industries. Like, all that was coming anyway. The The, the, the decimation of retail. Decimation is not even right. That's only one-tenth. The obliteration of, of, of retail as we think of it. The obliteration of the modern education system as we think of it. Like, all that shit was coming anyway, and this just made it worse. And you're going to throw a nice little recession or maybe depression in the middle of it. Yay! You better take this shit seriously. Because you better be the person that says... I will spin up something that covers me 
for what I need no matter what because stop thinking there's always going to be a bailout or a stimulus check. person I really like, and I know he's just kind of messing around, said, when's the next stimulus check coming on Facebook a couple days ago? And I said, it's not. He said, why not? And I said, because the Democrats just sent $3 trillion worth of virtue signaling to be killed by the Senate. There's no, you're not getting another $1,200 or $2,000 whatever check. They're not going to send you $1,000 every two weeks for up to a year after. I don't care what you heard on the TV, what the Democrats passed in the House. First of all, we'll if they did it, we'll destroy the economy. I've been pretty big on, you know what, the stimulus is not going to cause hyperinflation. You put dirt in a hole, you don't get a pile. But if you keep, you know, once the hole's full, if you keep piling the dirt up, you get a big pile. So you'll wreck it with hyperinflation. You'll wreck it with destroying what's left of the economy. You'll wreck it, period, if they do it. But they're still not going to do it because it ain't going to happen because nobody can agree with doing it. And so if they do it, they destroy the economy. And if they don't do it, you don't get your money. So you better be looking to take care of yourself. And that's the whole ethos truly of agorism. Thou shalt care for thyself. Thou shalt care for thyself. Thou shalt take responsibility for thyself and thy children. Agorism. Yep, that's what permaculture, that's the prime directive of permaculture. The prime directive of permaculture is the prime directive of agorism. Thou shalt take responsibility for thyself and for that of thy children. With that, hope you guys enjoyed today's show, and I hope you're thinking about ways that you can do this. Not just the things I said. Remember, one of my bullet points today is there are millions of examples. How can you take care of you? And you don't do it under the table unless that makes sense. This hustle ethos is both above and below thy table. Uh, with that, if you want to support this show and the work that we do, one of the ways you can do that is do your online shopping where? tspaz.com that's T-S-P-A-Z tspaz.com you'll see all the stuff that I've reviewed online I own it, I buy it, I spent my money on it and I would do it again and if I wouldn't spend my money on it I wouldn't recommend it to you today is for your doggies and I guess you can use it on kitties too it is BioGroom waterless pet shampoo I have never been big on bathing dogs most dogs don't like to get a bath even dogs that like water don't like baths and when you bathe a dog Unless you spend an awful lot of time with a blow dryer, the dog usually smells worse after you bathe the dog than before you bathe the dog, almost like dogs are not supposed to take that kind of a bath in the first place. So unless you have a professional groomer, which occasionally I pay for for Max because we need it done to him, um, I don't like to bathe my dogs. But occasionally, I don't know if you know this or not, dogs stink. And they need to be cleaned. I found this stuff... And I happened to find it right when my dog, Charlie, had done something that made him smell like a combination of rotted popcorn and stale Cheetos. I don't know what he did. He didn't get in the garbage, because I would have noticed. But it's what he smelled like. And around his head and face, he really smelled like it. I had just ordered this stuff. And it was a cold fall day, and I didn't want to give him a bath. If you try to give a 100-pound pit bull mix a bath on a cold day, you're getting as wet as the dog, and you're both going to be cold and miserable. And then the dog's wet and smells like wet dog. Maybe he doesn't smell like rotten Cheeto dog, but he still smells like wet dog for like hours. So this stuff shows up. I brushed him out, sprayed him with it. He wasn't exactly thrilled with it, but, I mean, he tolerated it for his face and all. Sprayed it on my hands, and I used it like, you know, kind of massaged it in, brushed him out. No more stinky dog. 
happy, shiny, healthy, happy dog. So now I use this on all my dogs about, about twice a month. They stay great looking. I still have to have Max professionally groomed because he's a shepherd with a huge, thick undercoat. Um, but the other two, I mean, they look gorgeous all the time. And this is all I do. It takes me to do three dogs. It takes me 15 minutes. And that's okay. Now I got to go find Lucy because she knows I've done it to Charlie and she's hiding under the bed. And I got, I mean, even with that, it takes me 15 minutes to do three dogs. Five minutes a dog. 15 minutes, I can't give one dog a bath with the hose, at least without being soaking wet. And then I got a miserable giant German Shepherd, an angry pit bull, and my little husky mix is impossible to get because she'll kill herself to get away from that hose. She's got to go first or she ain't going. Right? If you ain't first, you're last. That's kind of Lucy with a bath. You want to try this stuff. It's inexpensive. It works. It's safe. And the reviews on it are fantastic. Check it out, BioGroom Waterless Pet Shampoo. You can find it at tspaz.com or the Survival Podcast. And remember to stay in touch with all the cool stuff I do. Get on the Daily Mail. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com, click that subscribe tab, and fill out that one little form, and you'll get an, uh, an email a day, just bullet points, and just some links. With that, let's go to wrap things up with our song of the day today. Song of the day as we go into 70s week. Um, I actually decided to uh, call an audible here. Uh, John... John Adam does all the music for us, makes my life a lot easier. And he'll come up with themes, like last week was interesting covers, and this week is 70s. And I looked at his list of songs from the 70s, and today he had a song from The Who. And um, I'm going to say something here, and it's not the one you think it is, okay? Because I like that song. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. I, I like that song. Overall, though, I know it's going to... Can be mad at me, especially you guys that are my age and older. Never been that big of a fan of the Who, and I only say that because when I picked a day to go off of his song list and go to my own, that's why I picked because it. it was well out of all these, the Who is who I like the least. It didn't say I hate them or don't like them, just not real excited. So okay, so I thought about maybe some Pink Floyd or something, but I realized in his songs from the seventies. We didn't have any kind of like singer-songwriter that was such a big thing, you know, a, a Neil Young, a Dan Fogelberg, uh, something like that. Um, and Neil Young is like one of my not-so-favorite people, but one of my favorite singers. I really like his music. And a song that I've never played on the air that I really love and I always have is Heart of Gold. And so I wanted to have that type of song represented in 70s Week. Because 70s is a big diversity of music as music began to really evolve and become something really unique as we transitioned from the 60s to the 70s. And this genre of song is certainly one of those. There's a weird reason I've always liked this song, though. It has to do with a movie called Iceman. Iceman was this concept that they found like a Neanderthal man frozen in ice that was thousands of years old. And when they defrosted him, he was alive. And it's a pretty interesting movie. I think it came out in like 83, 84, something like that. Really cool movie. And the guy that was the Iceman, they ended up naming him Charlie. And the guy that's working with him, trying to figure out how to communicate with him and all, ends up at one point in the song basically banging something as though it were a drum and singing Heart of Gold. And I don't know why. And I haven't seen that movie in probably 30 years. 
But I've just always liked that song because it's anchored to that movie that I really enjoyed watching when I was a kid. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Searching for